Hello and welcome to another episode of Prove Me Wrong Please. My name is Connor and this episode is part two of my conversation with Corey Nathan. Uh, He grew up Jewish and then converted to Christianity. And I mention this only because faith plays a large role in his life and especially his view of politics, which we discussed in depth during the first half of our conversation. I recommend you check that out if you have not already, because this episode essentially just picks up right where we left off. I'm going to end this episode, as always, with a brief reflection. Uh, So I encourage anyone who may disagree with anything we say to email me at pmwp.pod in order to prove me wrong, please. Otherwise, enjoy the second half of our conversation about religion, politics, and friendly disagreement. This reminds me of the... um, African-American activist who has spent his latter half of his career converting former KKK members. Mm. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with him. I think he was a, like a previous like trumpet player and he essentially just targets some of the most extreme. I don't know if he's still doing it. I think he is um, more extreme kind of members of the KKK and just like, you know, far right groups and just kind of hangs out with them, talks to them, doesn't really, try to push his agenda and kind of lets them um, transition out of that mentality kind of on their own terms, their own timeline. And I, I think I'm going to have to Google him after this, because I'm now just curious, like what he's still up to. But I, I often think about that and how he's actually getting stuff done. And the people who are probably, you know, holding up, you know, anti KKK signs or whatever outside of the church. I, I don't, I don't know. I guess I'm, just making someone up here, but are, are not having an impact at all and are probably a bit counterproductive. So yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have to Google him right. after this. I, I think, I think the best work is done relationally, like I said before, and, and, you know, the, the adversarial, like, and I was talking to these ladies, so they have, they have a great podcast called what the folk. And I, yeah, I, that's, that's the one, the conversation I listened to. It was great. Oh, okay. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're I love the conversations they have. They're such interesting, thoughtful people. Uh, I love her music, by the way. Like, yeah, I'm still yeah. listening to her music. Nice. Um, but they disagreed with me on, on some of this. They they thought that listen, we, we got to turn over some tables uh, just to get some folks' attention. Yeah, you know, we gotta we gotta do some damage here, and then maybe they'll come to the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, so listen, I someone can make that case, and I have dear dear friends who you know, want to throw some fisticuffs around just to, you know, be able to stay in the room to get somebody to sit down in the first place. But I don't know, I, I do think that over time, the more lasting effects of the human beings that are in our lives come from dialogue, come mm-hmm. from relationship, come from conversations over a long period of time, you know, and, and, you know, those debate forms, you might have to concede a point, but it's not transformational. You, you just kind of, you lost that point. So what, you know, it's, whereas, whereas if we're, if we're in this together over a long period of time, we got to figure out, we got to figure out where we are wrong and, and how to redeem ourselves, how to redeem the imperfections and the untrue aspects of our own thinking. You know, if, if we have a genuine desire to do it and if not like, cool, man, you know, live your life, do your thing, 
don't participate in tikkun olam and in, in, in you know redeeming the world and redeeming yourself like that's cool too like that's mm-hmm. that's everyone's prerogative they they got to want to be a part of making things better for themselves and for the people around them and for the community at large yeah so yeah i i think i'm i'm with you on that point and if i kind of understand you correctly it, it you know i i went to school in georgia granted it was atlanta but still drew a lot of people from the south and i was in a very traditionally conservative fraternity um and i remember having conversations about politics and just race in general with some of my brothers and you know some of those conversations you know fueled by alcohol were a bit more <laughs> aggressive uh than others um but i i'm not gonna like pretend that i you know made any difference in in anyone's opinions but i there were often moments where i would be talking to a brother or i probably more likely alumni who would say something mildly racist but i would just kind of have to hold my tongue because i didn't want to end the conversation right there by calling them out and being like hey that's racist like you can't use that kind of language whatever um because like my greater objective was keeping them engaged in the topic at hand and I, I, that's something that I think about. And because I, I have friends who outflank me on the left, who I think in that situation would immediately kind of stop right there. And they, they view, you know, addressing it upfront and confronting that thing head on is more important than trying to look at the bigger picture. Um, yeah, no, it's, I think it's context. I think it's, it's situational, you know, I think that, you know, in that situation where you're surrounded by a bunch of fraternity brothers, then being able to stay in a conversation is 90% of the game, mm-hmm. you know? So to, to be too obnoxious about it and too, I don't know, uh, rebellious about it might just get you kicked out of fraternity or not kicked out of fraternity, well, but like not, yeah. you can't hang out there anymore. And I've done that sometimes. I told you about that incident when I was at the kid's school, man, I, then like, despite the fact that I'm actually fiscally conservative, socially libertarian, I became everybody's token Democrat. You know, I just mm. piped up about this speaker who was like, what are you talking about? Like Barack Hussein Obama, like, why are you saying Barack Hussein? We know what his middle name is. Like, why are you doing that? Mm-hmm. You, you know, he's not a Muslim. He's not a terrorist. He's not a, like, we know who he is, you know? And maybe you disagree with his, his, um, his policies, but, but he's, he's a Christian. Like that, that got me kicked out. Like I, I couldn't, be a part of those conversations anymore. Yeah. You know, even, even doing that. And that's more on, I think looking back, I still would have stood up and maybe I, I might've piped up in a different way, in a more winsome way, but yeah, we got to pick our spots. We got to, depending on the context, depending on the situation, maybe in that situation that you just described, there's a way to be like, Hey, you know, I, I don't know if you thought about this, but you know, I, here's what I've found, you know, I have an African-American friend. I don't know what the slight was, but um, I have an, uh, I have a lot of African-American friends and they're, you know, this one is a really interesting human being. And that one's a really, I don't know, a, a great contributor to his church. And that one's a great contributor to his like great business. Like, I don't know, maybe using personal examples, but like mm-hmm. getting into a conversation about, about uh, breaking down some of the congealed uh, perceptions that they're espousing, you know, because I'll give you one that's even more prevalent that we don't talk about. Another prejudice that's really, really prevalent that we don't talk about. And we've been talking about it, but we don't name it. And that is the socio-political prejudices that we have. You know, like 
if I ever utter the words, these are the same people who just shoot me on the spot, <laughs> you know, like it, because every one of my friends who voted for Trump, whether it was in 16, 2020 or both, they all have different stories. They're all coming at it from a different perspective. You know, so I don't want to say that somebody who voted for Trump, I don't want to write off somebody who might have voted for Trump in 2016. I don't want to vote. I just don't want to write them off because or or the other side to give you to specify, you know, an example of this. Um, I heard the morning it was morning, still morning here on January 6, 2021. I tuned into the last 15 minutes of Wilkow and the first 15 minutes of Hannity on uh, on XM radio. And they both had the beginnings of the embryonic versions of talking points that they're still talking about today. And those talking points were, um, where was your outrage when, you know, they were talking about Seattle or Portland or whatever. Uh, so as to say, well, you know, these people are storming the Capitol, but where was your outrage? What, like, as if the two things were equivalent. Two was, you know, many people are saying this is Black Lives Matter and Antifa. So they were trying to shift focus and say, this is a false flag and it's not really our people, it's their people. Mm -hmm. And the third one was the most disgusting to me. It was, well, what did you expect? This is what happens when, which is basically what somebody who is a, a, an abuser, a violent abuser says to their spouse as they're beating their spouse, what did you expect? This is what happens when, you know, I found mm -hmm. that so disgusting, but that comes from an embedded prejudice they're whole, like, I listen so that you don't have to. <laughs> I listen to these shows so that others don't have to. But I, I listen because I'm waiting for the fever to break and for somebody like Hannity or, or, or any of these guys to these people there. I just did it. Yeah, but yeah. Folks who make their living on saying the left is trying to, the left thinks, the left is saying, like what they're doing every day, what Hannity in particular is doing every day and, and a whole industry of people who are like, like the media children of, of uh, the spawns of, of Rush Limbaugh, I think, yeah, is they're trying to generalize anyone who is outside of that orthodoxy. Anyone, and they're trying to, um, he, 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 as his job, and he's very good at it, is mischaracterize the views. In fact, uh, Joe Walsh, he was on the Lincoln Project about a week or two ago, and he was describing this very thing. And I love the fact that he is, owning what he did for a living for the better part of a decade and, and naming it and describing it. He said every yeah, he, day, he's my one job, of like two people who on, on the there's, right. There's who, more than yeah. that. I just want to encourage you. There's a lot okay, more than that. Okay. Charlie Sykes is another one who has a oh, whole yeah, yeah. independent media outlet, the bulwark, which is great. And mm -hmm. Charlie was immensely successful, but Joe said every day I would read the paper, go online, find the most extreme example of some liberal doing some dumbass thing. And then I would turn that into the left is trying to, I don't know, um, steal your moose because they don't want you to kill them. <laughs> you yeah. know, whatever it might be and turning it into everyone who doesn't watch Fox News, everyone who didn't vote for whoever, everyone who is trying to um, argue for gun legislation, whatever it might be and mischaracterize, generalize and demonize anybody outside of that bubble. Mm -hmm. So that's a prejudice of a different sort. And listen, do you think both sides are equally guilty of using that tactic? Because Again, I, I don't. I, I, I think both definitely use it, but the right has much more weaponized it over the last like 20 years. So I, could be, I don't I could be necessarily wrong. submit to the both sides uh, framework of it, but okay. I will 
so just to address it directly uh, within that, what mm -hmm. I will say, let's take just to be specific, today's Republican Party and today's Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. In today's Democratic Party, if Ilhan Omar says something that is anti-Jewish, it is very quickly named as such. If there's a senator from Minnesota who pictures reveal that he you know, was sexually aggressive or inappropriate with someone you it's know, out of the party prior, yeah. like he's out of the Senate within what, a week, a month, like yeah. next, you know? Uh, so I think that it's acknowledged as more of a fringe, even though the squad, if you will, a AOC and Ilan Omar and, you know, the squad is blown up as if they are the, um, the, the, you know, they represent the entire Democratic Party. But if you'll notice, AOC got less than 30 seconds, I think, at the, at the DNC in 2020. You know who got a lot more time than that? Colin Powell. A, a mm, longtime yeah. Republican, Meg Whitman, the Republican candidate for governor uh, a couple uh, cycles ago, uh, Christine Todd Whitman, governor, uh, Republican governor of New Jersey, who then went on to be a um, on the on George W. Bush's uh, cabinet. Republicans, all of another. I forgot the there was a fourth who got like way more time on the national stage than AOC did. So the fringe is is seen as such in the Democratic Party in the GOP. Listen, I have I have a, a representative here in California 27 who who won this district by less than one tenth of one percent of the vote, 333 votes out of 350,000 or so that voted in the last cycle, who voted to overturn the election of Pennsylvania on January 6th. He voted to overturn the election of Arizona the very next morning. It might have been the other way around. Either way, within 24 hours of people storming, violently storming the Capitol, people died. And he's voting to, he, he's voting to uh, the it's way- not, It's not Nunez, that, is it? Well, Nunez is a couple districts north of me. It's Mike it. Garcia. Nunez won his okay. district by a, a much wider margin. But yeah, what's okay. significant about it to me is that this is a purple district. Mm. And yet he couldn't find it in himself. To, to find the courage and the integrity to say, this is anti, this isn't a Republican democratic thing. This is an anti-democracy thing. And I need to vote in such a way that is on the other side of the guys who, who stormed the Capitol. Yeah. But no, vote after vote. And his entire, it's been a year and a half now that he's, well, two years actually, because he came into office on a special election prior to 2020, uh, the, the November 2020 election, but vote after vote after vote. And what his public statements reflect is that he is anti-democracy. Yeah. So I think that has metastasized. The point is it's metastasized much more in, in today's Republican party while the democratic party. And again, I am a, I'm a fiscal conservative. Like I love the Romney Ryan ticket. I didn't hate Obama and Biden. I didn't think that they did so much that they needed to be fired from their jobs, but I, I would have loved if Romney and Ryan were, were elected. That was great ticket in my mind. They've turned, you know, Ryan in particular has turned out to be a different character, unfortunately. But it as has Romney, I mean, for the better in my mind, but Romney for the better. But Ryan, I, I, I don't know what he's doing. He's on the board of Fox News right now. And I, it's disappointing. But it, it reflects yeah. the point I'm making is that in the, today's Republican Party, it's much more metastasized. Yeah. A guy like Kevin McCarthy, who is uh, in my neck of the woods here, who, it, you know, if the Republicans win majority in the house in this next election mccarthy has as good a shot as any of being being the speaker he unless they appoint trump 
Yeah. Can you imagine? No, but Trump would I actually mean, have to do some work. Yeah, I know. I know. It, that'd be a, a demotion for him. So I can't imagine he would ever take it. <laughs> they'll do it as a stunt, you know, and, yeah. and they'll have debate, you know, or what, what their version of debate. But McCarthy will not be able to hold off those who would want to impeach Biden on day one of, of their term mm-hmm. uh, and Kamala Harris on day one of their term and have hearings on. I mean, let yeah. me tell you something. We're going to have the Benghazi version of uh, Joe and um, Hunter Biden's laptop. Oh, yeah. Not all day, every day for two the two years. You know, it, every- it's going to start on day freaking one. Oh yeah. So, and every member on the Jan six committee is going to be investigated themselves. It's going to be, absolutely. it's going to be a shit yeah. show. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't want that as much as yeah. I would love for uh, there to be a different tax policy than what was reflected in, you know, the green New the, deal or any mm-hmm. of the more uh, progressive leaning fiscal policy initiatives. Uh, I would much rather, I feel like I can be in a much more productive conversation with my most progressive friends, as long as they're not like militant progressives and mm-hmm. insist that I uh, abide by their particular orthodoxy and, you know, it's and, and, and display a sufficient amount of hatred for anybody who happened to vote Republican once. Like, yeah. So I'm not going to submit to that, but have I you- do fe- feel like even on the most contentious issues, abortion, I feel like we could have much more productive conversations with folks that are to the left of me Mm-hmm. Uh, politically and theologically. Abortion's a great uh, example of, I, I totally agree. I think that's an example of a, an issue that I absolutely disagree with people typically on the right of me, but at least like I'm willing to have that conversation or debate because it, as long as it's again, based in reality and based in facts, but something like was the 2020 election stolen, that's not something that I have as much is easy in a time of kind of letting slide. Um, I mean, I have family members who are convinced that Joe Biden is the illegitimate president. And I'm like, okay, just, I mean, I don't talk to them and they I'm sure would never listen to this, but I, you know, my response would be like, all right, show me the evidence. And then they would, you know, find one example of someone accidentally voting in the wrong district as proof of a larger liberal plot to overthrow the election, whatever. Um, I, I'm first off, just like, a question that came to mind as we were talking about this have you been to a trump rally before i can't do it <laughs> so i i don't blame you i've been to a few and i think they helped a lot in terms of unless you consider certain church services the de facto <laughs> trump rally so yeah, yeah well no, yeah. i can't do it um but they, they've been interesting because uh, a few times i've gone uh it's been to promote a, a trivia website i have that basically just provides uh trivia questions focus on politics to get people to kind of do their own research and improve news literacy on their own terms and and just essentially quantify how much you pay attention to the news and just create a consensus of fact and from those experience i gained uh, or met a lot of people who again far right were you know very interested in having fact-based conversations but then they would never actually <laughs> use facts in those conversations but at least like there was that common understanding that arguments rooted in facts were better than those rooted in opinion. Um, I, but that being said, I, I've seen the research. I, I know that just like, you know, throwing a bunch of facts at someone is not going to actually like change their mind. Um, what are your, what are your thoughts about, you know, using, just using like an approach, almost like a, like a courtroom approach. We're like, all right, here's my evidence. Here's yours. Let's just compare it in a way that doesn't 
necessarily come across as combative, but it still has an objective outcome. Uh, if we were to do that completely, that would feel performative to me. Mm -hmm. I think there's a place for that. Like one of the books that I read when I, before I became a Christian, that I, I didn't find completely compelling or persuasive, but opened the door to another set of questions was this book called, uh, there are a few of them that, that were kind of in that ilk. One was called A Case for Christ by uh, Lee Strobel. Another one was called Evidence Demands a Verdict by um, uh, McDowell, Josh McDowell. So there, I think there's a place for that. But if, if we were to do that, it, it would almost feel staged and performative. And more so, it would be more beneficial for those in the audience. And it feels to me, actually, no, I take that back because I have seen good debates that were very edifying. I think of, um, there's this uh, Christian scholar. He is, an, he is a, an Oxford guy, a guy named John Lennox. Uh, and his, he came up through math and was a scientist, but also Orthodox Christian. And before Christopher Hitchens passed away, they had a series of debates that I thought were fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, or, or earlier uh, in the 20th century, there were uh, debates that were uh, written down or what do you call it? Documented between like Lincoln Douglas say, debates are famous. Example. Oh, yeah, Lincoln Douglas yeah. are great. Um, so there, there are examples of that. The one I was thinking of was between G.K. Chesterton and um, oh gosh, atheist philosopher. I'm blanking on his name. I have a collection of his essays up on my night table right now. Um, early 20th century, first half 20th century, uh, atheist uh, English scholar. Bertrand Russell. Um, hmm. I thought those were brilliant debates. And frankly, I was persuaded in some ways on certain points by both scholars in those series of, of debates. So yeah, I think there's a place for that. I don't know if I'd want to participate in that. Although I do think that um, in, in conversations, in the midst of conversations, there might be a moment to push back. You know, the way that the the, um, the ladies at, at What the Folk did with me at a certain point where I forgot which one said it, but she's like, let me gently pause it. <laughs> you know, and, and she yeah. had her information. And, and at the very least, what it did for me was like, I want to look into that. Mm -hmm. That is interesting. I didn't know that. Let me look into it. You know, so I, I think there's a place for that. But you have to, again, with most folks and most relationships, you got to pick your spots. What about other like performative tactics that I, I think are good at kind of breaking through all the noise? Um, like, for example, I, again, on the topic of January 6th, Jordan Klepper, you know, the Daily Show comedian who yes. goes to a lot of conservative <laughs> events and, you know, talks to people in a, you know, a semi-polite way. But at the end of the day, he's essentially, you know, making fun of them and their yeah. views and trying to have them contradict themselves. Um, you know, I, I don't know if that's necessarily productive because his audience is clearly people like me but at the same time people know him at these rallies and so he's clearly gaining an audience on the right like what, what are your thoughts on that tactic 
that particular tactic I'm not as big of a fan of because it's simply reaffirming you, you have a welcoming audience preaching to the choir kind of a thing mm-hmm. you know folks folks who are wearing red hats all day every day aren't watching that show and aren't totally. particularly persuaded by that particular tactic however there have been performative tactics that are immensely effective what comes to mind is sitting at a lunch counter oh know? yeah yeah I mean that is it's more than symbolic or 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 you know, I get chills just thinking about it. The open casket, you know, when, um, oh gosh, I forgot the young, young man's name. Um, Tamir, no, not Tamir Rice. Uh, Emmett Hill. Emmett Hill. Yeah. I mean, you could, you could describe that as performative, yeah. but it was eye-opening for, for a public, for a country that had no idea. Yeah. You know, if you're in other parts of the country, uh, y- you have no idea, you know, if, so you know, or, or sitting at a lunch counter, they knew taking a knee, maybe taking a knee. They knew what they would invite and it's symbolic, but it, it, it forces us to ask questions. If you're looking upon it, not with, not with a combative eye, but an open heart and saying, why are they doing that? You know, why, why is Kaepernick doing that? I I Mm -hmm. don't understand. And you enter into it the same way I entered into the conversation with my son the second time around, which is help me understand. I just want to understand, you know? And then you might walk away from that thinking, man, they're full of it. I, I just do not buy it. But a lot of times, and, and there have been those moments, like I'll tell you, and this might piss some of your listeners off, but uh, there Welcome. have been conversations. No, <laughs> Um, there have been conversations I've had where I was put into the profile of white male privilege. Mm-hmm. I have a huge problem with that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I, I went through a couple of years of conversations with people I know and respect and love and still ha- have not been convinced of the imperative of putting someone like me in that profile. And it, and it comes down to this. It's like, listen, I know that the, shade of my skin is on the lighter side. Uh, I also know that I've been married to the same girl for almost 25 years. So I I get that there are data points about me that one would be inclined to put me in a certain profile, but it's hard for me to submit to this um, requirement that I enter into these conversations with a flagellum fully applied at all times, because listen, I am one generation removed from half my family being eviscerated in the Holocaust because of our race, because of who we were racially. You know, I'm a generation and a half. My grandmother grew up in, in or actually Ukraine, in Cherny Ostrov, Ukraine, and had to leave. Her, her, her friends, her neighbors' parents were beheaded at the hands of men wearing crosses on their chests because of why. Their, their houses were burned down. They lost, they had to leave everything they had, and they had prosperity there. My great great grandfather was mayor of that town. They were they had mills. They they were very prosperous. They had to leave everything they had. Why? Because of who we are as a people. So the idea that I'm going to be uh, profiled because of the shade of my skin, you know, I say we suffered great harm within one generation because of who we were racially. If you want to think about race. Um, you know, and if you really want to think about it, the reason that my skin is a lighter shade is because we had these hordes from the north that came down and raped my ancestors. You know, I should look Middle Eastern, but we suffered because of who we were, who we are as a people. So it's hard for me to submit to, 
you know, you, you took two data points and created an entire narrative of who I am. I do not submit to that. So I think a lot of these conversations and some of my more progressive friends would, would certainly um, object to the way I just described that. And I understand that I'm not reckoning with my own privilege, but I can't enter into the conversation if you've just taken a couple of data points and told a whole story about my existence, my humanity. We, we, don't, we don't have a good solid ground to even begin that conversation. So, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, when I launched this podcast, it was after attending some George uh, Floyd protests in, here in Denver and just feeling the need to just kind of share my views. But I, I was very reluctant for a while because I was like, all right, well, shit, I'm a, like a straight white guy from a upper middle class family like maybe my voice isn't the one that people want to or should hear from right now but then i thought a little bit more about it i'm like well no i think everyone deserves a seat at the table granted my kind have dominated those seats for sure um but i i i still felt compelled to kind of share my own thoughts and and didn't like hearing from people, you know, particularly on the left saying like, no, you just kind of need to shut up. Even though I, I generally understand, you know, where, where they're coming from. Um, but also, I mean, a lot, large part of it, this is just like therapeutic to me. And, you know, yeah. at the time, like, uh, you know, the world seemed to just be burning to the ground. And so it was, a, it was just a nice practice and continues to be uh, for me to just kind of vent some thoughts and, you know, give my brain a little bit of like mental exercise. I'm not sure if that's exactly related to the kind of like what you're referring to with your, you know, much more complex um, history in terms of. Um, no, it is. It um, is because both you and I are likely, you know, someone would take one look at me, one look at you and put us in a similar profile, like to, to use a term I, I, I was saying before. And I just don't think that's allowing for each other's humanity. And I don't think it's particularly productive. You know, and I understand that there are certain rooms or certain tables that I might have an opportunity to be at, or maybe not invited at all, which is, I find it is more often the case that like, all right, well, I, I, I want to be an ally. I recognize that there are fractures, that there are problems in our culture. Um, there are problems in our world. And I want to be a part of healing some of those things. And I, I recognize that some of those things, like I mentioned a, um, a wonderful person named Lisa Sharon Harper, who wrote a book uh, just came out in February called Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. And she told the story, the history of race in our country, but she told it in a really interesting way. She told it by looking up her own family's history, by doing DNA evidence and looking at, at uh, records, birth records, death records, legislation. And she was able to place her actual family members in specific times and places where legislation was enacted, even before the founding of our country, and said, this is how it affected human beings. This is what I know about this human being. And this is what it looks like as it plays out over the course of the history of our country. So when she got to the, toward the end of her book, uh, she made a case for reparations, mm -hmm. but it was a much more nuanced case. You know, anyway, all that to say, I do recognize that there are institutional problems baked in to the fabric of our culture, of our society that we have to reckon with and we have to make right. I want to be a part of that. You know, even if it's just having someone like Lisa on my program and having this conversation and evangelizing her book and how powerful it is, you know, but if, if someone like Lisa were to look 
take one look at my picture on, on LinkedIn or whatever and be like, I don't need to talk to that dude. We, we can't do any good work together. Like, mm-hmm. all right, that's your prerogative, but like, all right, you know, and the, what I will object to, I, I don't necessarily object to that. It's their prerogative. What I do object to though, is again, taking one or two data points or three data points and creating this whole narrative about me. I'm like, fuck you, man. Like you, you're doing the very problem that's at the heart of, of the bigger problem. You're, you're, yeah. that's what you're doing. Like, so stop. I do have a problem with that. Yeah. I mean, I, I need to do a better job at not doing that myself. I mean, I was recently hanging out with a friend and his mom was in town who I've met a few times before. She's super cool. We were hanging out uh, as a group um, talking about, you know, a bunch of random stuff. No politics ever came, came to mind. Um, and I just remember telling my friend like, Oh man, your mom's really cool. I, uh, love the relationship that you guys have together. And then it later came up in conversation that she voted for Trump in both elections. And I think honestly, had I known that going in like prior to even meeting her prior to the, you know, that weekend, I don't think it would have really changed my behavior by any means, but it always would have been kind of lingering in the back of my mind. And so I need to just do a better job. I think of kind of separating someone's politics specifically from their humanity and their personality in general, because I, I think I, I live in a world that is just so focused on, on people's people reflecting their, their own humanity through their vote, which I think a lot of people just don't spend as much time necessarily thinking about. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's a reasonable conclusion to arrive at because our politics have become so prevalent that it does become our de facto identity. But it's I like think the that new religion, yeah, it is. Politics is a new religion. Linda Feldman wrote a great piece in uh, uh, Christian Science Monitor last year about that. There's been a lot, a lot of great material written about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that being aware of that uh, and not falling into that, um, that, that proclivity is a, is a good first step. And then giving mm-hmm. Yeah. So the big, the big takeaway for 2020 and 2021 for me is giving each other a little bit more grace, you know, mm-hmm. starting with ourselves, um, giving each other a little bit more grace. Because I don't know what led to that person voting for Trump. I don't like, I don't, maybe my, one of my first questions might be, so after January 6th, would you vote for him again? Um, and it might be, well, I couldn't vote for him, but I certainly couldn't never vote for a Democrat. Okay. All right. That's cool. You know, so, but just entering into a conversation about it finding out what led to them voting for it and, and trying to fend off uh, an accusatory sort of slash and burn. Well, how could you vote for somebody who wants to kill babies? <laughs> you know, like, I, okay, we, yeah. we, we got to kind of unravel that conversation and maybe start over again with good faith and good intent and, you know, give each other a little bit of grace and goodwill. So, and if the person can't do that, then, all right, let's talk about the Mets. You know, <laughs> let's yeah. talk about poker. I don't know. Let's talk about something else because yeah. we're not going to get any work done here. So, yeah. Um, well, you've been very gracious with your time. We we started off the conversation kind of talking about religion. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned, I probably consider, well, do consider myself more so atheist, but I definitely value the sense of community that I think religion brings, which, you know, everyone's always looking for a community. I think a lot of the people, Jan- January 6th, were there because they had a sense of kind of camaraderie with a lot of the other people there. I mean, the multiple Trump 
events that I've been to around the community honestly felt like a family gathering to a certain extent. So I, I understand the draw. I'm curious, and you don't have to to answer this. What's your What's your pitch for an atheist like me on reconsidering uh, religion in general, or even Christianity specifically? Do you Do you have uh, a pitch? I suppose I don't necessarily have a pitch, um, and it would be hard for me to start with religion. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and specifically American Christianity, because as, as my one of my brother's favorite bumper stickers is Jesus may love you, but everybody else thinks you're an asshole. So, <laughs> so I wouldn't necessarily start there. I think with I think what I would uh, start with is maybe a more philosophical question to explore. Mm -hmm. And that is, do you believe in a completely closed universe or can you uh, can you believe in the possibility of an open universe. In other words, is this whole system completely closed and everything works within a, a natural order? Or is there the possibility that there's this outside entity? Uh, in fact, a like if you want to think about it, I, like I think the Big Bang makes a ton of sense. I love macro physics. Mm -hmm. um, Back in the day, I read um, Hawking's book, uh, A Brief History of Time, and actually understood it because I'd taken wow. some physics classes. I'm not um, nearly that smart, so <laughs> kudos. <laughs> I'm not that smart anymore either, but... Um, but <sighs> so, so thinking about like, all right, do does your conception of the world begin with the Big Bang or what created the Big Bang in the sense of like, is there... Like, yeah, so that... Like, yeah, so, maybe uh, I'm misinterpreting what you're saying. No, 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 you're like, totally right on. So Hawking made the case i think if i remember his case because i can there was a book that came out a few years later called the god particle and mm. uh, letterman i think was the writer and it was about that like eighth quark that was a subatomic sub you know nuclear or whatever mm. and and the, the, it wasn't really the god particle it was a goddamn particle because they couldn't find it <laughs> and and then the process by which they ultimately found it they were like oh crap there are sub sub particles underneath the quark so you know by which they found they finally found the eighth quark and um, I forget if it was Letterman's or Hawking's um, uh, thesis, which was it, it wasn't just the Big Bang. It was it was more of an accordion where it kind of consolidated in. Th there was a universe before this universe that got smaller and smaller and smaller to the point where it couldn't you know, be any smaller to where it finally exploded. And that was the Big Bang. And it's going to expand, expand, expand before it finally starts coming back in on itself. Mm -hmm. So. That's one way to look at it. But if you want to think about the Big Bang, um, was there a Big Banger? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, even if it's the accordion version where it's going back and forth, is there somebody like moving the accordion back and forth? Is there any entity, uh, you know, extra transcendent entity that is a cause of that, mm -hmm. uh, a, a first cause, a creator? I think there is. I, that's, I, I came to the conclusion, and this is the irony of that. The irony of, of a, a conclusion like that is that it is the, the way that I arrived at the conclusion is more empirically verifiable, but only to me. <laughs> so so my, the questions, the questions that I had that led me to that conclusion, I, I, I know it just like I know that there's this, you know, pen in my hand. I like mm -hmm. I know it. But the irony in such a big conclusion like that, in such a big, important idea like that, is that the way that I arrived at it cannot be experienced by anyone else other than me. 
I, I don't know if I'm making any sense. It's to me, it's this wonderful irony that it's the most empirically verifiable thing in the world that there is a God. And the subset of that is that I am not God. Those are the two most empirically verifiable things in the world. But the irony is that they're only empirically verifiable to me. <laughs> I mean, that, that sounds like what you're describing is faith in, in a basic form. Yeah. Yeah. Not, I, to, I, that, not to just dilute, you, you know, you're more. No, no. I mean, at the end of the day, there is this uh, leap of faith, this jump of mm -hmm. faith that you have to make. Um, but then that opens up a whole other set of questions. Like, do, do you have faith? And I think when folks think about it, we all have to have some faith. Like when I order some food at a restaurant that they're not going to spit in my food or the food's actually going to come out or like, we have faith in certain things. Yeah. And because our experiences have led us to believe that we do a certain thing and then another thing is going to happen after we do that certain thing, you know? Um, so we all have this uh, ability to um, see th that there, there are these leaps, these, these cognitive leaps that we can make, you know? And, and with these big ideas, I was, yes, there, there were, there are gaps that faith kind of is the glue that keeps these connecting ideas together. Mm -hmm. And, and when I started to take steps along those cobblestones, these, these esoteric, not esoteric, um, what is it when you know something, what's the word for how do we know things? Um, there's a word like, for it and I'm, uh, that's slipping my mind. It's the study like of intuition oh. of how we know things. Um, but, oh gosh, um, there's a, there's, I'm, I'm losing the word right now but it like i'll add it in later big ideas. <laughs> <laughs> awesome um when we study these big ideas we, that's what it is it's these philosophical cobblestones that we're walking on uh -huh. um, or, or or these little rocks that cross a stream that we ultimately have to get to the other side of that stream so we can continue on that walk mm. so yeah i totally get i'm not going to say like well if you know there is no faith because i know it for sure i'd be full of shit so yeah. all I'm saying is that I am still earnestly walking on that path. Uh -huh. And the path that I'm on now is that there is the universe is an open universe within which a creator, God, uh, a create creator entity can act, uh, it is, is, is involved in, was involved in creating, uh, and can act within in an active way or they, or it picks its spots, you know, I don't think it's going to come to me and say, Hey, uh, go to Kmart aisle 12, because, you know, you're going to have a big, I don't, I just don't think God yeah. works quite in that way, <laughs> but well, I, I hope more and more religious people, um, not just here in the U S but around the world kind of have that. I I'd say more like curious approach to, to religion. Um, that, that you seem to have, because I, I don't know, I, I kind of think the world would be a bit better place. And again, not that religion is the, the main problem by any means. Um, oh, man, you, I just had this image, the world would be a better place with a lot more guys like me, man, oh, we'd be like, we'd be like <laughs> drinking too much. And like, just I don't know, it, it, we'd be a mess playing too much <laughs> poker, curse. Oh, it'd be a mess. No, we don't need more guys like me, but <laughs> that's funny. Um, well, before I let you go, one question I always like to ask folks, because I'm just genuinely curious is how do you get your news? Um, because I, I'm for me, like I mentioned earlier, I subscribe to a wide variety of newsletters that I 
try to skim through each morning just to get a large picture. Um, yeah. I obviously have those that I prefer, but what about you? What's your process? So these days I've actually, okay. So the bigger answer is I do make a concerted effort to have a diversified portfolio of mm -hmm. news sources, even those that I have and have expressed here and a, a great aversion to, if for no other reason, then I have a lot of friends who that's their main news source. So I want to know what information they are being fed. And they are, uh, you know, I, I just want to understand my friends who I disagree with a little bit better. So I listen to these other news sources. But, um, you know, I'll also make a case for the, the truth that uh, there are great journalists, great reporters doing great work in all kinds of outlets. You know, there are great opinion writers in all kinds of outlets. Some of my favorite ones are those who are expressing contrarian opinions in predominantly outlets that are predominantly from quote unquote the other side, like George Will in the Washington Post, yeah, or this, David, this Bro David David Brooks. Brooks is one of my favorite. Yeah, yeah, they, these are some of my favorite thinkers. Uh, you, you could even say Peggy Noonan in in Wall Street Journal uh, is a contrarian view oftentimes in, in those. Glenn, Glenn Greenwald, Jeremy I don't know Greenwald. Uh, he wrote for not the Intercept. Um, he founded an organization. Um, I should, I need to Google it now. Uh, he's very critical of the left, even okay. well, the right as well, but, um, he was the one who initially published, um, Edward Snowden's, uh, allegations. Okay. Yeah. Well, another example is just recently uh, is, um, when Sean Penn had a yeah, conversation with Sean Hannity. I thought that was great. Or, or mm. when one of my favorite politicians right now is Mayor Pete. I really hope that that dude has a future. Yeah, I like know. him a lot. Yeah, uh, but he, he he's one of the few uh, Democrats that show up on Fox on a regular basis. I love mm. it. Uh, so I, I like that. But my main news sources are these independent media outlets like the Bulwark. Uh, they're they're not as much hard news, but um, the the Dispatch is probably my favorite outlet right now. That's um yeah that's one of my favorite newsletters right now yeah yeah um i also i mean on this topic i listen to democracy now they've got some great conversations um in their coverage and i also think they do a better job of portraying international stories than a lot of other networks um, yeah yeah love it um gosh i did come across i think democracy now they're either a part of or they are a network where a whole bunch of really interesting podcasts. Uh, I might be I might be thinking of the wrong one because I, I just learned about them within the last week or so. Uh, but I, I'm I'm intrigued. Like that yeah, that I, ethos is something that I'm very very much drawn to. Yeah. Um, well, Corey. Yeah. Thank you for your time. I really enjoyed this conversation. For for folks listening, where can they where can they find you? Sure. I really appreciate that. The easiest way to find the podcast is our main website, politicsandreligion.us. That's politicsandreligion.us. And on all the socials, you can find the uh, the podcast or, or what we're doing as a group at TPNRPod, T-P-A-N-D-R-Pod. Uh, and Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook and we're on TikTok. Or you can find me at Corey S. Nathan, C-O-R-E-Y, S as in Sam, N-A-T-H-A-N, Corey S. Nathan. Awesome. All right. Well, that concludes my conversation with Corey Nathan, who I want to thank once again for joining me for a great chat. 
A few quick thoughts before I let you go. Uh, beginning with, I'm glad that Corey acknowledged uh, in one part the difference between the two parties and that Democrats actually confront bad behavior instead of just excuse and ignore it. Uh, I think it's important to hold Democrats or anyone really accountable and especially call our own out on their bullshit. But it's, you know, just a false equivalency to say that both sides are equally bad when it comes to things like responding to unethical behavior among its ranks, just as it is not okay to say that the extremes on both parties are in control. The fringe on the left is still just the fringe. And unlike the right, where the fringe is essentially now the party, uh, part of the party that's in control. But, you know, back to with, with regards to ethics and how the two parties address it, we Democrats actually do kick our people out and hold them accountable. Al Franken is who we mentioned, uh, not by name, but that's the person who comes to mind. Um, instead of just completely ignoring uh, the far more serious stuff uh, on the right that just again, seems to be swept under the rug, and I'm looking at you, Matt Gates. But anyways, I, I think this is essentially kind of what irks me most about the religious wing on the right, is that they're really quick to just kind of, you know, looking at Trump specifically, dismiss his promiscuity, you know, i.e. Stormy Daniels, yet constantly are condemning, or at the time were condemning Hillary for staying with her husband after his high-profile affair. I think it's also worth noting that the party of family values is the one to have elected the only two presidents in modern history who were previously divorced, Reagan being the other. Not that I think there's really anything wrong with divorce, but I, I just kind of find it ironic, to say the least. Um, I also agree with Corey's point that you know you can't take one or two data points on someone or you know a party even and use that to define their whole personality. But to be honest, it's kind of hard for me to separate someone's politics at this point from their personality, especially when they consistently support someone like Trump, who just demonstrates so publicly what I consider to be pretty abhorrent behavior, um, at least abhorrent in the case of a presidential candidate. Now, I, I agree we need to give each other more graces, as uh, Corey you know, mentioned, but there, there has to kind of be a line after which doing so is only further enabling these kind of folks to just feel justified in their support. And I know Corey did mention that as well. Now, I, I can understand someone who is religiously devout um, supporting Trump, even if they don't pay much attention to politics or are just genuinely brainwashed by right-wing media and Facebook algorithms that portray people like Trump as the second coming of Christ. But even then, I can't really tolerate these people's just general unwillingness or inability to try to get the full picture of the person. I mean, some have some personal responsibility, right? I, I know they love that saying. But Trump, to me, is just – he just clearly does not embody true Christian values. And I'm sorry for bringing up Trump, but again, he is the leading frontrunner of the Republican Party and stands a pretty good chance in winning uh, in two years. So I, I don't think we can really ignore him. I mean, to me, he's really nothing more than just a charlatan who even this week we found out was willing to literally shoot protesters in order to take a photo op holding a Bible outside of the White House. He was literally willing to shoot them. I mean, he, he's really nothing, in my mind, more than just a puppet of the extreme religious right who were willing to put up with anything in order to ultimately take away rights from women. Plain and simple. I mean, the hypocrisy is literally too abundant to 
really dive much into here. So I'll just kind of save that for another episode and encourage you to listen to, I think during my first season, I had an episode on religion. Um, and that has got a little bit more coherent thoughts, at least on this topic. But I do want to finish this you know, reflection where this episode kind of picked up. Um, and that is by talking about Daryl Davis, who I mentioned is the African-American jazz musician who has spent the last 30 years convincing over 200 KKK members to abandon their white supremacy belief and reject the dark side, so to speak. I mean, honestly, I respect this guy. And at times I, I try to kind of emulate his method or process, whatever you want to call it. But there, there are just times where I just question his kind of gradual approach, albeit effective, just because it, it just doesn't necessarily seem like it fits the moment for me, perhaps. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But last week was definitely one of those times where I really kind of questioned his methods because after learning about the Supreme Court's intention to overturn Roe v. Wade after nearly 50 years of efforts from the far Christian conservative right movement to make it happen, I I just don't know if I have that level of patience. I mean, when, when stuff this genuinely backwards happens, which just to be clear, the vast majority of Americans oppose overturning Roe v. Wade, that is, it's kind of hard for me to just take that slow and more understanding gradual approach that Daryl Davis embodies, even when ultimately, I, I know it's effective, but like, what difference does changing 200 minds really make? I know it's obviously more complicated than this, but I mean, this is also why I just kind of hate religion. And again, sorry, Corey. I mean, because it's always just the religious folks. To be fair, those on the extremes who use their religion as justification for just fucked up policies that then affect everyone else as if they just don't care about separation of church and state. I mean, which is, again, ironic considering how much they love the Constitution, but whatever. I mean, the hypocrisy of this upcoming decision specifically by the conservative religious justices, uh, most of whom all vowed not to do exactly what they're primed to do is pretty egregious. I, I honestly don't want to get into it here because there are far more qualified people to talk about it. But I, I just mentioned it because I, I think you can't ignore the effect of religion, which it seems to just, in my mind, kind of hardwire people into a belief that they are entitled to disregarding facts that might put into question their own beliefs, whether that be related to abortion, climate change, education, or, I mean, most issues, really. I mean, to these people, their beliefs, you know, stemming from religious texts come first, and then everything else must conform in order to fit those beliefs, as opposed to the other way around, which is how it should be. And I, I honestly think that's kind of what separates people, uh, especially in their political views, is is how they form their understanding of the world. And I, I sincerely hope people like Corey make up the silent majority of religious people in the U.S. who kind of take this more scientific and holistic approach to understanding complex issues. But again, it's worth noting that something like 40% of American adults believe in creationism, or essentially that the earth is 10,000 years old. So I don't know. I'm not that optimistic, I suppose. I don't know. Corey, Corey did mention, you know, just hoping, just kind of waiting for the fever to break. But I, I don't know if that day is really ever going to come. 
especially not when Fox News is the number one rated major cable news channel and just consistently pumps bullshit propaganda into the ears and eyes of vulnerable and supremely gullible people who, like I said, are already just kind of hardwired and conditioned into hating and just distrusting anyone outside of their ever-decreasing bubble and small ecosystem. Now, if politics is the new religion and people like Hannity and Tucker Carlson are the new preachers who, let's be honest, are drawing far wider congregations than any single preacher outside of maybe Joel Osteen, then I, I have little hope that my efforts to pop the bubbles that they've created to shield their audiences from reality will really do anything regardless of if I approach it with empathy and kindness like Daryl Davis or just pure unfettered anger, which is kind of what I'm always struggling with. But I, I wouldn't say struggling with, but kind of leaning towards, I should say. But I, I know research says that, you know, the more kind and empathetic approach is really the only effective way of changing minds. But I mean, like I said, I'm just kind of waiting, getting tired of just waiting for these people to catch up to reality. I, I, I honestly question whether methods used by activists in the past, like the ones that we mentioned, you know, sitting at peacefully at, uh, you know, a whites only lunch counter or re refusing to stand up um, on a bus or even publishing the photo of your murdered son, like uh, Emmett Till's mom, would do anything in today's age where, you know, these kind of actions would be met with just a flurry of online skeptics and just right-wing keyboard activists just trying to sow enough doubt into the equation in order to essentially just render it potentially illegitimate. That's all they have to do because everyone's attention span is so short that as soon as they get one piece of conflicting information or just a little bit of doubt in their viewer's mind, it's enough to kind of make everyone just kind of shrug their shoulders, move on, and forget about it. I mean, honestly, just look at January 6th. I mean, there's ample video evidence of protesters beating police officers, chanting, hang Mike Pence, wearing MAGA uniforms, all that bullshit. And yet a sizable portion of the right, including some of my right-leaning friends, legitimately think that that was an Antifa conspiracy or just a completely peaceful protest with one or two bad apples that is being depicted negatively by the media. I mean, honestly, this you know, in reflecting on this, it, it kind of reminds me of the stories that we've heard of uh, old people living in Russia whose kids living abroad are, you know, calling them, trying to reach out, trying to convince them about the realities of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, only to be met, for, you know, from their parents with just complete rejection of, of reality, essentially. I mean, shocker, it's once again, the older people, mostly in Russia, who are the most susceptible to the propaganda coming straight from the Kremlin. But I mean, even if their kids and family members who are on the ground on the ground living in Ukraine are unable to convince them about reality, then I don't know. I guess I'm not so sure the approach of addressing these kind of folks with compassion, patience, and humility is going to be all that effective in the big picture, uh, or even worthwhile moving forward as we enter this next phase of right-wing authoritarianism versus democracy, and. Just to be clear, it is that. I mean, you know, bringing it back to abortion, let, let's be clear. The vast majority of Americans support Roe v. Wade, but an ever-decreasing minority of Americans, disproportionately white men, have decided to restrict the rights of citizens instead of expand them. I mean, 
democracy, this is just one example of how I think democracy is backsliding here in the US, but around the world, really. Um, and I, I think it can't be ignored. I mean, the bigger picture is, is obviously relevant here. Now, I know the best teachers growing up were those who had the patience and temperament to, I, I don't know, essentially like take the hand of the worst students in order to help walk them through the most difficult lessons with everyone else. But to be honest, I'm really kind of starting to appreciate the other teachers who I perhaps at the time considered uptight, strict assholes who just didn't take any shit, didn't even bother to teach those who didn't want to learn in the first place and focused on those who did. I mean, the only difference kind of here is, you know, their failure to learn is everyone's loss. So I, I feel in order to actually heal this broken country, and I, I think it is pretty broken, most people would agree with, I'm going to try to channel my inner Zen and, you know, try holding their hands as long as I can stomach it. Um, but I'm, I don't know, I, I guess I'm not entirely sure how, how long that will last, although I will try to to do my best. I know this probably sounds super patronizing or elitist as if I have all the answers and others do not, but I, sh I assure you I don't. I just think that my political beliefs, um, which I've spent a little bit more time thinking about than, than others, have just a little bit more of a basis in evidence and reality um, than a lot of the folks that I typically disagree with. Not to say that I have the answers to everything, because I know I don't. Um, and I will continue to challenge my beliefs while encouraging others to do the same in the shared interest of just generating a better understanding of the world around us. I, I think at least that is something that Corey and I agree on, even though, I mean, as you can tell from our conversation, I think there was plenty of agreement to go around. But anyways, I'll just kind of leave it at that. Like I said, if you enjoyed this episode and are interested in more conversation about religion and politics, then check out my earlier episodes. Uh, I have another episode um, earlier on about just education kind of being the solution where I go into a little bit more about how best I think to address complex issues with uh, opposing arguments like abortion or climate change. But um, yeah, I check those out because I think I have a little bit more coherent thoughts there than this kind of rant that I, I'm giving you now. But otherwise, I just want to thank Corey once again for joining me um, and encourage everyone to check out his podcast, which is called Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, because he has some really impressive guests on. And he's just, as you can tell, a pretty intelligent um, guy with great insights. I'm still trying to get a few uh, QAnon and pro-life folks that I've been reaching out to on here because I clearly have a lot of thoughts on both of these topics that I don't want to necessarily dive into right here now. But if you know anyone who would be interested in chatting with me regarding those topics or really any topic that you think uh, I would potentially disagree with someone on, then please send them my way via social media or email. Um, so yeah, I plan on recording another episode soon, so stay tuned for that. Otherwise, thanks for listening and have a good one. Stay safe. Cheers.